This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. We are in the midst of Season 8. My name is David Dalt and I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I teach at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friend, Father Daniel P. Horan, OFM. He's a Franciscan friar of Holy Name Province in New York, and he's the Duns Scotus Professor of Spirituality at the Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He's also a columnist at National Catholic Reporter. And I'm here with my other friend, Heidi Schlumpf, who's the executive editor of National Catholic Reporter. Welcome, Heidi. Welcome, Dan. Heidi, how are you? I'm great, David. I'm coming to you from the great state of Wisconsin this morning. My family took a little trip up here to stay at my parents' house while they're having a vacation elsewhere. It's still winter up here, and we hope to get out on the ski hills this afternoon. And Dan, how are you? Welcome. Hey, David. Hey, Heidi. Good to see you both. I'm doing okay. Folks who follow me on social media will know that we recently lost uh, a great leader in Catholic education, Dr. Dennis DePiro, who's the president of uh, St. Bonaventure University, my alma mater, and a university on whose board of trustees I currently serve. So it's been a very heavy week, a very sad week on one hand, and his funeral was, was very moving, but very surreal and heartbreaking. Fortunately, it was live stream, so many folks in the Bonaventure community and friends from other Catholic institutions around the globe could tune in, and people can see that still. But amid the sadness, there's been a little glimmer of hope for St. Bonaventure as well in our men's basketball program since we're in March Madness. Regular listeners of seasons past will know that this is the one kind of major sporting uh, event that I really do love and follow, which is college basketball. And the Bonnies were the Atlantic 10 Conference regular season champions and have made it to the Atlantic 10 Tournament Championship, which is being played on uh, this upcoming Sunday on, on March 14th. So check that out at one o'clock Eastern time. It seems very likely that even if the Bonnies do not win the title on Sunday, that they're still pretty well slated for an at-large bid to the tourney. Um, but as commentators over the last week on NBC Sports and CBS Sports have been commenting, the St. Bonaventure University has been screwed over by the selection committee in the past because we're a smaller school, even though we have a very strong basketball history and legacy. Bigger schools with crappier records like Syracuse University, Boo the Orange, have gotten bids over smaller schools that have really more deserved records. So I, those of us who are from St. Bonaventure or who support St. Bonaventure love the Bonnies basketball. We're not holding our breaths. We hope to get that secure slot with the championship title and we'll see where things go. 
Yeah, David, how are you doing? Doing good. And I want to say the Loyola University Ramblers, I think, are also in that March Madness. And so go Ramblers, but also go Bonnies. I'm doing And go well. Sister Jean. And go Sister Jean. I'm doing well. What, what I was saying to Father Dan a little earlier was that I oftentimes am suffering from a kind of ongoing depression. And lately, that depression has lifted. And I have been very blessed by that. And I'm grateful for that. But the, the other side of that coin is I'm having to relearn how to feel a lot of feelings without it being wrapped in the sort of cotton of depression. And so I'm feeling anxiety, you know, because I've got a lot of projects going on, but now I'm feeling anxiety in a completely new way. And so I'm, I'm learning a whole new raft of emotions these last couple of months, which has been fun, but also it's a blessing on the whole, but it's also a little weird. <laughs> and so that's what's been going on with me. But otherwise, the family is good. I'm good. And I'm really glad to be back with the both of you. David, thank you for that sharing. And, and I know we and all of our listeners are, are supportive and happy uh, for you that you're in this kind of phase right now with your experience of depression. So this is, I'm very happy to hear that. Something, if, if I may add, I don't know if either of you saw this last evening, we're recording this on Monday morning, but I did watch the CBS interview by Oprah Winfrey with the, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, which was talk about depressing. And again, we want to acknowledge, and, and I'm sure we'll have in the show notes, a link to those who may be seeking assistance if they're having suicidal thoughts or experiencing some form of depression. Meghan Markle acknowledged her own suffering with experiences of su suicidal ideation. And Prince Harry also talked about effectively being cut off from his family financially, emotionally, and so forth. And the kind of underlying racism, maybe not so underlying, maybe super on the surface racism, overt racism that exists within the royal family, which is not at all surprising to many people. I'm curious if, if either of you or both of you caught that and what your thoughts are. Well, I know everyone was talking about that interview, but I was uh, celebrating my husband's birthday yesterday, so he got to choose what we watched on TV. But we, we watched Nomadland on Hulu, which oh, also yeah. dealt with a lot of very heavy issues around loss and grief and depression and loneliness and economic disparity. I did not watch the interview, but I did read about the highlights, and it sounds like it was a lot of bombshells. What about you, David? Did you watch it? My wife and I watched the interview on Twitter, and I'm scare quoting here because we didn't have access to the interview itself. But what we did was we watched everybody reacting to it, and that was almost as good and almost as interesting. And I am I'm fascinated by the response from the kind of status quo British press to this. The, there's been character assassination of Meghan Markle, particularly going on for the last couple of weeks in anticipation of the interview. And now I can see why they were trying to do damage control before this thing dropped. I'm no fan of the royal family. And those that follow me on Twitter know that I'm very vocal about that. So I'm interested from the standpoint of exposing some of the things that I, I think about in terms of the power dynamics. And Dan, you've mentioned the racism that is also there in the background, not to mention colonialism. So all these things are interesting to me from the standpoint of I want for this institution to wither away. Carl Sagan once said, if something can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. And so I'm happy to hear some truth being told about some of the power dynamics going on behind the scenes. So that's my take, and that may be a more extreme take than some people are used to. I'm very much in line with you, David. I, I thought not only what they did was courageous and brave, but was historically ground-moving. This is a moment that is not unlike, I think, the spotlight revelations in Boston in 2002, which is you can't come back from this, and I don't think one ought to. 
I did keep thinking as well about parallels within the Catholic Church. I, I made a comment on Twitter that I think, and this echoes, I think, David, your perspective, which is that I believe monarchies should be dismantled and those other institutions that masquerade as monarchies. Theologically, the Catholic Church is not a monarchy, but there are certain bishops, there are certain lay Catholics, there are certain priests and other ministers, religious, who operate like they're little monarchs who desire for the church to be something that it isn't. And so I think some of the same really d disturbing, systemic, institutional, problematic forms of injustice, including racism, especially in the U.S. context, but misogyny, homophobia, transphobia, all these kinds of things that play out are deeply present. And the church and in its true Italian sort of deeply <laughs> embedded culture coined the term of bella figura, which is anything to make us look like we're good, no matter what's going on inside. And I'll tell you the one quote from Her Royal Highness, I will continue to honor that title, uh, even if, if the firm will insist on taking it away from them. Meghan Markle said that for so many years, the royal family was willing to lie to protect the reputation of some of their members, but they were unwilling to tell the truth to protect her and her husband and child. And to me, I think that reflects very profoundly the kind of sick prioritization that happens with these kinds of institutions. Of course, the irony is if we want an institution like this to go away, what doesn't go away is our immense fa fascination with them and their personal lives. And so in, in some strange way, I'm, maybe I was doing my part to help dismantle by not caring enough to watch. <laughs> <laughs> I watched because Oprah was there. <laughs> right. <laughs> Two well, hours of an Oprah interview was the bomb in Gilead that I needed. She's our American royalty, quote unquote. <laughs> or or Popra, we might say. She's our pontiff. <laughs> In the spirit of turning our eyes elsewhere, today on the show, we're going to be talking about three topics. We're going to be talking about the Pope's recent visit to Iraq. We're going to be talking about some of the nonsense that has been coming out of the USCCB and some of their members recently. And we're going to be talking about the, the recent COVID relief package, which at this recording has passed both the House and the Senate, but still is waiting to be fully reconciled in Congress and then signed by the president. That's what we'll be getting into today. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, I get together with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dolt to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. As we're recording this episode, Pope Francis has just returned from a three-day trip to Iraq, the first pope ever to visit that Middle Eastern country and Pope Francis's first trip abroad since November 2019 because of the pandemic. The historic trip was focused both on Christian-Muslim dialogue and on encouraging the country's dwindling Christian community, which suffered greatly under the brutal ISIS regime after the 2003 U.S.-led invasion. Francis visited six cities including two that had been largely destroyed by ISIS terrorists. The Pope also met with Grand Ayatollah Ali al-Sistani, one of the world's most influential Muslim clerics, in a meeting that many called historic. Near the birthplace of Abraham, Francis urged faith leaders to affirm that violence and extremism are, quote, betrayals of religion, and that hatred of others is the, quote, greatest blasphemy. During visits to churches that were destroyed by ISIS terrorists, the Pope reminded those gathered that, quote, terrorism and death never have the last word. 
Safety was a concern during the trip. In recent months, there had been a suicide bombing in Baghdad and a rocket attack against U.S.-led coalition forces. Spread of the coronavirus was also a concern, and photos of crowds during the papal gatherings suggest that the planned social distancing didn't always happen. Still, this is definitely another historic trip. Heidi, what is your takeaway from all this? Well, Dan, um, I was able to talk to NCR's Vatican correspondent, Joshua McElwee, this morning, traveling on the papal plane right after he landed back in Rome. And he said it was an amazing trip. It was really great to be traveling again, both with the Pope and with his fellow colleagues in the press, since there hasn't been a trip in, I think it's a year and five months. That was very moving, as well as he was able to share that the reaction from Iraqis was really tremendous. So it was clear they were very enthusiastic to see the Pope and his words and his gestures. Apparently, the meeting with the Muslim cleric was supposed to be about 20 minutes long, and it went almost double that. So everything said the right thing, that he cares about them. They're not alone in their suffering. He offered words of hope. So I think it really was an important trip. And I'm very glad that everyone got back safely because of some of the violence that had happened in the months leading up to the trip, some rocket launches and a suicide bombing. I'm glad there was that kind of safety. That said, Josh did report that it was not fully safe COVID-wise. There were gatherings that were larger than they were supposed to be. People weren't always masked, whether in a crowded church or in crowds outdoors waiting for the Pope. Now, the Pope, obviously, and everyone who was traveling with him have already been vaccinated for the coronavirus, but it didn't seem like the coronavirus virus was much of a concern among Iraqis. Still very moving. And I did ask Josh, how did the Pope look? (laughs) And he said, you can tell he's aging. I noticed in the video when he was descending from the plane and walking across the tarmac that he's definitely limping, I think, from that sciatica that he suffers from. But he's still out there making headlines and really saying moving things that I think that are important to hear from our religious leaders. I want to ask both of you, because my impression of this from a distance is that the entire attitude with which the Pope approached this trip was one of humility. It wasn't triumphal. It wasn't there to stir the pot. It was there to say, I'm coming as a pilgrim of peace, and I'm coming to create a message and an atmosphere of peace and reconciliation. Now, you both have perspectives that allow you more attention to this than I have as a distant layperson. So I'm wondering, am I reading that right? And is that how it was taken by the Iraqis? Yeah, I would say 100%, David. I think that's right. I've seen a lot of conversation now that the Holy Father has returned to Rome safely and that people can start decompressing and processing what unfolded. I've seen a lot of talk among Catholic scholars and those who engage in interreligious dialogue, in particular on social media, highlighting the stark contrast between Pope Francis and his predecessor, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And you'll recall very early in Benedict's pontificate, he returned to those of us who are theologians know a very important European university in Regensburg, and he delivered a, a lecture there I think in a mode where he did not quite yet realize what it means to be the Pope and the significance of his words, he prepared a a lecture, and I'm sure himself, it wasn't ghostwritten because he's a brilliant theologian, and and he presented an academic argument that was 
not entirely misunderstood, but it was easy to take out of context, given the fact that you're not speaking to a group of fellow scholars, you're speaking to the whole world. And it was deeply insulting or is perceived to be insulting by many in the Muslim world and among Muslims worldwide. And it's just a stark contrast, as people have been pointing out, to see Pope Francis's approach, which is much more pastoral, far less academic. Not that he doesn't have academic chops, because he does. He used to teach at a seminary, for heaven's sake, in Argentina. But I think your point is well put, David, that this is a step toward reconciliation. We often talk about these cliches, most of the battle is just showing up, this sort of thing. But I think when you have the kind of platform that a world leader does, whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're the pope, showing up where you show up, how you spend your time, what you say and who you visit with is pretty significant. I'll just say one other thing that struck me that I thought was notable is the secular media's coverage of this. The New York Times gave live coverage to this reporting in a way that they do very rarely to religious topics because I think they recognize the global significance. And one early feature piece that I was really struck by, and part of this is my past life as a photojournalist, was they had a gallery of historic images of papal visits in the past. Going back to John the 23rd being the first to get on a train and leave Vatican City since the kind of fall of the papal states in the 19th century. And then you had this image of Pope Paul VI overseas visiting the slums. And it just was so familiar to us who are used to these years of Pope Francis's ministry. Or one thinks about John Paul II's many visits and, and his symbolic gestures of reverencing the ground when he lands in a new country and this sort of thing. And so I, I think it's very powerful. I think it's very significant. And it's deeply moving to think about some of these smaller countries, some of these war-torn countries, places where Christians are notably uh, a minority. So I think that is significant. I know that there is a Vatican II document called Nostra Aetate, and it's largely talking about the relationship between the Catholic Church and the Jewish communities of the world. I'm wondering if there are any similar documents that exist around relationships with Muslims, or are are there any sort of resources that we can point listeners to? I'll just say that Nostra Aetate actually does highlight Islam as a particularly important religion with whom we share with Judaism a shared Abrahamic origin. And so Nostra Aetate is, it prioritizes our relationship to our Jewish sisters and brothers as ancestors in the faith and as shared Abrahamic traditions. But it's worth noting that actually that document does lift up Islam as well as an important religion and dialogue partner. And I would just say to add there that it was very symbolic that one of the places that the Pope was speaking from in Iraq was near the birthplace or home of Abraham. And so very much highlighting the shared history of those three faiths. On the papal uh, plane on the way home, when the Pope has his press conference with the media who are on the plane with him, he responded to, defended the trip, even though some were had been concerned about him traveling, giving the possible violence and the coronavirus. And he also mentioned that he he knew he might be criticized for that meeting with al-Sistani and said that there are some who don't see this kind of interreligious dialogue as a good thing, given some of their concerns about maybe extremism in parts of Islam. But he you know, definitely defended it and said, you take this to prayer. This is what the council, Second Vatican Council, asks us to do. David, I think you're exactly right that he does things with a attitude of humility and that that really 
speaks volumes, especially in today's world. I was gratified also to see this morning that President Biden released a statement praising the trip, um, saying it's a sign of hope. If there's anything that I thought about this weekend as I was watching the video and reading the stories, to see the immense suffering of the people of Iraq. And some of that is definitely on our plate as well in terms of having not improved things there with our U.S.-led invasion. And I think it just reaffirms the foolishness of war and how terribly devastating it is for people on the ground. Well, and Heidi, one thing that I'm aware of to build on your statement about our culpability in the decimation of Iraq, and that's been going on for almost 30 years now, there are some in higher levels of our military that have spoken in terms of holy war or crusade language over the last couple of decades. And that's part of the contrast that I see with this papal visit is it's a stark difference between that notion of coming in as a conqueror instead coming in as a pilgrim. I'm just curious about what you all think about that kind of contrast. Well, and I think we see it spelled out in Pope Francis's writings, especially his latest encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, where he situates that encyclical letter addressed to the whole world within the historical remembering of his namesake's very important and very courageous and very exceptional meeting during the height of the Fifth Crusade in 1219, when St. Francis of Assisi crossed the battle line of the crusade to engage in a peaceful encounter with with Sultan Malak Akamil, who was at that time understood to be the quote-unquote enemy of Christianity, according to Pope Innocent III, who called for the Fifth Crusade. So in this sense, I think he's living out the gospel life, the gospel message. It's a cliche, of course, to ask, what would Jesus do? But you could ask yourself, what would St. Francis do? And what would Jesus do? And what does God call us to? And I think that's what we see play out. Pope Francis takes that very seriously. And, and I give him a lot of credit for not succumbing to the bella figura of many of the curial officials and other critics about, oh, what this is going to be, quote unquote, confusing to people. Is this Islam is the same as Christianity, blah, 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 these kind of nonsense, straw men arguments. The other thing I will say is um, with Heidi, I agree with you. The thing I'm still slightly, if maybe more than slightly uncomfortable with is the potential for a super spreader event. It's really, I'm very nervous about in the height of a global pandemic, the the, the it's one thing for the Holy Father to say and to acknowledge I'm going into a place where there is violence and I might be a victim of that, though I do understand that raises questions, including for our colleagues, Josh and others. Anyways, that's complicated. But then you add on top of it, the masses of people of the faithful and of our Muslim sisters and brothers who are attending these gatherings. It's very upsetting. I'm still not sure how to think about it. I wanted about the first part of your comments there, Dan. Did you see that meme that how it started, how it's going? A meme that showed the St. Francis and then the Pope Francis meetings. I thought that was funny. Oh, I haven't seen it, but I love it. Yeah, the coronavirus spread, I think, is a real concern. And we won't know, obviously, for a couple weeks or maybe not even really find out if it if there was spreading. Even Pope Francis is not that good about wearing his mask all the time. And every time I see him in a smaller enclosed place without his mask on, I just get tense watching that. And not just, obviously, he's been vaccinated, but for the people around him. But then again, I'm seeing lots of photos of people around our country and the world who seem to have gotten back to normal. And we'll talk more about that in our next segment, I guess. But still, overall, just a real encouraging 
trip to see that from our religious leaders. And hopefully I think it will have some positive ramifications for Muslim Christian dialogue throughout the world. Yeah, I agree. I think that's so important, especially when we continue to see church leaders in this, I guess, like you said, Heidi anticipates where we're going next, contradict the basic elements of our teaching. David, you talked about Nostra Aetate. This is not some take it or leave it sort of option. This is from an ecumenical council of the church. This is what we believe. I, I can't tell you both how many times as a friar, as a priest, as a professor that I'm asked by people or confronted by people, well-meaning people usually, who are under the impression that our Muslim sisters and brothers, or even our Jewish sisters and brothers, quote unquote, worship some other God. And I have to remind them, absolutely not. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Jesus Christ is the God that all three great Abrahamic faith traditions worship. It, you know, what, how we understand that is where we start to find differences, right? That's where theology and doctrine come in. But boy, I hope this is, it continues to be a legacy of Pope Francis that is so important. At the top of the show, we talked about our difficulties with monarchical language and with the existence of monarchies. And now we're talking about crusade language. I just want to point out that there are wings within our church who prize both the idea of monarchies, as we said, but also the idea of holy war and crusade as some kind of noble calling that God is asking us to do. I just want to plant my flag and say, that's not the church that I understand, and that's not the Christ that I understand. And that when I see Pope Francis going in humility and saying, I'm not here to change you, I'm here to speak with you and to have to have fraternity with you. And that language of fraternity over fratricide really resonated with me. And so these are very hopeful moments and ones that I hope continue. And as they continue, we will certainly be talking more about it. But for right now, we're going to take a break. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Over the last several months, we've witnessed an unprecedented scientific achievement that has global health consequences. Researchers were able to develop several highly effective COVID-19 vaccines in less than a year. In the midst of a pandemic that has taken the lives of more than 500,000 people just in the United States alone, any constructive effort to help stem the suffering, save lives, and prevent the spread of this virus is not only a medical victory, but also a moral one. However, a handful of American bishops do not see it quite this way. Several bishops in dioceses across the country, including the Archdiocese of New Orleans, the Diocese of Bismarck, North Dakota, and the Diocese of Tyler, Texas, have issued statements suggesting that the Johnson & Johnson single-dose vaccine is, quote, morally compromised, unquote, given the alleged use of fetal tissue in the development of the vaccine. Bishop Joseph Strickland of Tyler, Texas, has gone so far as to suggest all three authorized vaccines, the Pfizer-BioNTech, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson, should be avoided. While an early joint statement written by Bishop Kevin C. Rhodes of, of Fort Wayne, South Bend, 
chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Doctrine, and Archbishop Joseph F. Nauman of Kansas City in Kansas, chairman of the USCCB's Committee on Pro-Life Activities, encouraged the faithful to select the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines over the Johnson & Johnson one if they had a choice, Bishop Rhodes followed up with a statement on March 4th, which said that use of the Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccine, quote, can be used in good moral conscience, unquote. The Vatican has also stated unequivocally that use of all authorized vaccines is morally acceptable. Dan, it appears that we have another case of a handful of American bishops taking it upon themselves to determine what is or is not morally acceptable for Catholics, even when their personal views contradict that of the Vatican or their brother bishops in the United States. What should we make of this? Well, it reminds me, as the the saying goes, deja vu all over again, that classic misconstrual of the cliché. We've been here before, and it's really exhausting. That's the summary statement. It's worth noting again, and this is why it's important that Bishop Rhodes, who chairs that Committee on Pro-Life Activities for the USCCB, came out on March 4th to offer a clarifying video statement. It's regrettable that he and Bishop Nauman issued that statement earlier, in which there's no common sense engaged here. There's no sense of reality. I'll go so far as to say that there's no sense of the common good or of discernment or of consulting the sources. Nobody has a choice in which kind of vaccine they get. It is a complete nonsensical claim and set of advice. It misleads, misguides, misinforms people. And again, I would go so far as to say bishops who on their own accord, as in these cases, who make these sort of statements, are cooperating with evil. This is a form of sinfulness because they're putting burdens on people that can result in deaths. The irony is not lost on me that their ostensible claims is for this kind of resistance or this kind of uh, skepticism around the vaccines has to do with their kind of, I would say, myopic view of abortion as the not preeminent issue, but as my colleague at NCR, Michael Sean Winters, wrote in a column today, the only issue. And he did a great job. I I commend to our readers his piece. He says a couple things, one of which is something that's been on my mind, and I'm grateful to him in his reporting to kind of find who is informing these bishops. Where are they getting this nonsense? And I'm not trying to be glib and I'm not trying to be disrespectful. I think it's the most respectful way to put it. It's nonsense. To go against the Vatican's directive, to go against what moral theologians are saying, to go against the common good and common sense. And he finds that at least one source that seems to be present in a lot of these bishops' comments or in their forming their own, I would say, misinformed conscience is this, I guess it's called the Charlotte Lozier Institute, which is part of the Susan B. Anthony List organization. This is kind of an organization that is a partisan, Republican partisan right-wing group that is not objective. It is not a scholarly organization. It is not a Catholic organization. And Michael Sean concludes his column, and and this is where I'll just leave it because I'm curious to hear what you two think about this, is, is he has this very insightful comment. He says, only in the world of conservative Republican Party politics is abortion the only important moral issue. The U.S. Bishops Conference has become, like the Susan B. Anthony list, an arm of the GOP. And in sowing confusion about the morality of these vaccines, they will make it more likely that more people will die. End quote. And I could not agree with that anymore. Yes, Dan, and I'm sure Michael will appreciate you highlighting his column. It's very strong in pointing out how this seems to have been a political 
decision. And too often what we're seeing from some bishops and occasionally from the bishops' conference as well are things that just make you question. Are they just an arm of the Republican Party or is this our church leadership that's not partisan? It's so scary because people are listening to this and there are Catholics, not just right-wing Catholics, but everyday people who are hearing when they hear that the bishop's conference says you shouldn't take this vaccine over the others. Those are people who then are going to decide to maybe not get the vaccine or wait to get the vaccine. And the vaccine protects not only you from the virus, but it helps to build up what we hope to get to some level of herd immunity where we can protect others, including people who can't get vaccinated, like children or others who are unable to get the vaccine. It was a communications debacle because when the bishop's conference statement was released, I saw people on Twitter interpreting it in wildly different ways because it was so unclear that nobody was sure what they were saying. Are they for the vaccine or against? I can't tell. So I think the least we can ask is that their statements be clear and avoid the clear political posturing that this was. What did you think, David? Well, one response that I have is that this highlights the necessity of Cardinal Bernadine's notion of a consistent ethic of life, not simply an ethic of life that is focused on one issue, but one that looks at all different aspects of the support of life, the flourishing of life, the life and abundance that Jesus Christ promised to us as part of the Christian faith. And I want to highlight that when we've had closings of different parishes and closings and the inability to go to Mass, we've had some local leaders who have spoken out and said, basically the equivalent of, you should sacrifice yourself for the sake of going to Mass. Put your life on the line so that you can take the Eucharist. That's been the message that I have seen at various points around on social media and others. And that's in stark contrast to this notion of we must preserve unborn life at every cost, but the lives of people who are actually there and walking around are basically sacrificial for the sake of the Eucharist. And I, I I want to point out the fact that that seems to me not only to be inconsistent logically, but it's not a consistent ethic of life. And so that's just my initial take on this, is that the, the consistency of messaging, the consistency of logic, and the consistency of life as a promised flourishing and abundance, all of these pieces knit together for me in some important ways. Yeah, I think there are a couple things, too, that are worth noting. One is the faultiness of the premise that these bishops are are assuming. And this, I'm sure, is because of the misinformation of this organization that Michael Sean pointed to that seems to be a thread connecting all these disparate, I would call them sort of rogue statements or, Heidi, as you said, PR debacles. But let's just say that it were true. Let's just say that there was a some sort of clear, direct line to abortion, right, as such. How can you then claim that one life is more important than another when we talk about the half a million people in this country who have died because of this disease and the many thousands more that will die if the vaccination rate does not increase at a steady pace? This is, I think, again, another lens into the idolatry of abortion among certain members of the USCCB, certain bishops in this country. And it's reflective of a culture of death among pro-lifers. And what I mean by that is they're very concerned, at least with the idea of protecting the unborn, but have very little regard for those who are actually born. (laughs) 
and what you do after one is born in this world. And we can see that across the spectrum, whether we're talking about capital punishment, whether we're talking about racism, whether we're talking about economic inequality, class uh, injustices, misogyny, patriarchy, whether we talk about sexual violence, or whether we talk about a global pandemic. The fact that they're prioritizing, and in this case, the, the closest one can claim is a very extremely remote, not proximate cooperation with something that has already happened, as it were. To me, it, it defies common sense. It defies, first of all, our Catholic moral teaching. There's no way in which these claims are substantiated by the best of Catholic theological ethics. And we have many theological ethicists and moral theologians who have spoken out about this. It's, it's exhausting that this is still being peddled by some of these bishops. But I think, again, it speaks to this prioritization of at least the idea of protecting the unborn over the actual justice and protection of the born. In the 17th century, I think it was the 17th century, there was a Quaker in America by the name of John Woolman, and he became famous or infamous among certain Quakers because he was an abolitionist, and he would go and he would argue with Quaker slaveholders that they needed to give up their slaves. But he also thought about the fact that the dyes that dyed the fabric that made his clothing were carried on the same slave ships. And so he began a practice of only wearing undyed clothing. And this became a, a political statement among certain Quakers to go in gray. You would not participate in the economy and the commerce of slave even to the level of not having your clothing be tainted by the process of bringing uh, things over. I think of that in light of a similar mental experiment done by Karl Rahner in the 20th century, where he talked about a banana. And he talked about all the ways in which that banana is tied up in colonialism, all the ways it's tied up in suppressed wages for the people that pick it. But you go to the grocery store and you just pull out the banana and you think, oh, this is an easy thing. I'm just going to get this banana. And it's cheap, too. I, I bring up these two examples to show that in John Woolman's time, the calculus was perhaps more visible and more easy, and that in our time, it gets much more complex. We live in a much more complex world, and we have to weigh these kinds of questions. We have to look at the moral good of a vaccine against the potential taint of the sourcing of that vaccine. And we can think not only of fetal tissue, but we can also think of Henrietta Lacks's cell lines and the racism that's brought up in that. So we are in a moral calculus, there's no doubt. And it's not a simple moral calculus. But we need to be weighing, Dan, as you've said, and as Heidi, you've talked about, we need to be weighing the kind of greater common good in this moral calculus, not simply the, oh, I've got a light switch decision of am I going to support evil or not support evil? It's much more complex than that. Yeah, I just would add that we see that in so many decisions. And what we're going to talk about next is related in terms of the, the bill for relief for many Americans who are suffering economically from the coronavirus as well. And again, we had the bishops bringing up the issue of abortion or federal funding of abortion in a statement as that bill was being debated in the Senate. And of course, we saw the vote, which we'll talk about next, was very partisan because for various reasons, not always abortion, I think Republicans were voting against it. But I, I respect the pro-life values of people for whom this is an important issue. And it is true that we all have our issues that are more important to us, and we can't be advocates of every single issue. But in this case, it literally is large numbers of people's lives on the line. And it's discouraging to see our religious leaders, again, communicating in this way that then, I think, hurts the church's credibility when it tries to speak out about other issues in the future. 
Yeah, I was thinking exactly that last point, Heidi. I was thinking the same thing about, I, I think some of these bishops who speak out in this way view themselves as radical advocates, that, that what they're doing is to inspire and to challenge the faithful and the public to correct what they perceive as a grave evil. Again, there's an irony here because in doing that, they're actually discrediting themselves. What they're doing is actually watering down their moral authority, if not losing it outright. And I think similarly, not only with the pandemic, but also with global climate change, these issues that affect all lives, not just the unborn, not just the incarcerated, not just this group or that group, but all lives. And when you see this preference for one single particular kind of human life, and, and one that, as David, you were alluding to earlier, it, it, this is much more complicated. It's not as simple as sometimes these advocates in the anti-abortion movement would have you believe. I, I just think that, Heidi, you're exactly right, that actually this leads to a discrediting of their own moral authority. And the irony that I was alluding to earlier is, therefore, they're undercutting themselves. If they actually upheld what, what Cardinal Bernadine referred to as the seamless garment or what the Catholic teaching pr presents as a consistent ethic of life, then actually they would have greater strength and authority because they could speak to issues that are seen as meeting the criteria of intrinsically evil, right? This idea that it, this, there are many things, not just abortion in church teaching, but many things, including torture, capital punishment now, racism, these other things that are never, ever justified. That's what intrinsic evil means. But by, by picking their own hobby horse, they undermine their own credibility across the board, including in working for justice when it comes to the unborn. Well, at least some bishops did uh, speak out then in response to these other bishops and tried to clarify and take a different tone and to take that kind of tone that you were advocating there, Dan. Of course, that maybe just caused even more confusion because people couldn't understand why they were all coming from such different places. But I, for one, was grateful for those bishops who did speak out and say, wait a minute, even the Pope says here we should be, and this is the time to listen to the Pope. Let's, all of the vaccines are uh, morally acceptable and actually to be encouraged. Well, and your point there, too, reminds me of something we've talked a lot about on this show over the seasons, which is the kind of squishy magisterium that exists in the social media age. And I'm thinking about back in the before the pandemic times when you could go to certain restaurants that didn't have, let's say, a liquor license, they would say BYOB, bring your own beer or booze or what have you. But there's a different BYOB this day in the church, and that is bring your own bishop, that people are in this cacophony of perspectives, some of which are really off the rails, like those that we've mentioned already, even when there are you know other bishops who are trying to correct the record in line with the church teaching, in line with the Vatican's promulgation, in line with the Holy Father's teachings and modeling, people then get, like you said, confused and they don't know which bishop to bring, as it were. And so it'd be nice if they had a, a more authentic sense of internal fraternal correction and that they would listen to the actual church teaching and to, I know this is uh, going to sound a little biased coming from me, a professional theologian, but to listen to the actual theologians and professors of moral theology, we know what we're talking about. And a lot of these bishops, and this is not an insult, a statement of fact, do not. Just because you go to seminary doesn't make you an expert. And I'll leave it at that. We'll take a break now, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the coronavirus relief bill that was just passed by Congress and awaits reconciliation. You're listening to The Francis Effect. I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlum. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here 
with Dan Haran and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. After more than 24 hours of debate, this past weekend, the Senate passed the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill. If it becomes law, the bill will deliver a new round of financial assistance to Americans struggling under the impact of the pandemic, including $1,400 direct payments, an extension of supplemental unemployment benefits, and an increase to the child tax credit. The bill did not pass without controversy, though. Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnson, for example, called for the entire bill to be read out loud, in part to delay the proceedings. There were also a number of amendments to the bill that may threaten success now that it passes back to the House for final voting and reconciliation. The House Democrats' version of the bill originally included a provision to raise the minimum wage to $15 per hour by 2025. But the Senate parliamentarian decided the provision did not fit the rules that govern budget bills in the Senate, and the provision was stripped out of the final version. Despite this setback, the White House has stated that President Biden remains deeply committed to raising the minimum wage. But that is a battle that will be fought another day. In the end, the relief package passed 50 to 49 in the Senate. David, there's a lot to dig into here. Where should we start? I think we should start, first of all, with the fact that nothing can actually pass the Senate right now. We're in a logjam of eternal proportions so long as the filibuster exists. And we need to clarify this because the rules have been amended to the extent that the filibuster isn't even a filibuster. At one point, the filibuster required someone actually standing at the rostrum, and there were several rules, like you couldn't lean, you had to continually talk, you couldn't take a sip of water. If uh, I know that Dan is a fan of the West Wing, and maybe Heidi, you are too, but there's an entire episode about all the arcane rules of the filibuster. But soon after that episode of the West Wing came out, the rules were changed, and you don't actually have to do any of these physical exertions, all that has to be done is you have to threaten the filibuster and it creates this threshold of 60 votes. Another example of this is Ron Johnson's reading of the entire bill. Johnson didn't read the bill. Johnson sent his aides to the rostrum to read the bill. And so we're getting obstruction by proxy, and that's making everything take too long. It's making it impossible to get things done. So this bill that is being passed is not even being passed under the normal circumstances of how a bill should be passed. Again, if you're a fan of Schoolhouse Rock, that entire thing that we learned from that cartoon, that's not what's being done here. This is being done through a loophole called budget reconciliation. So one of the things to talk about here is the fact that none of this is normal circumstances for how the Senate is supposed to do its business, and none of this is normal circumstances for how these bills are usually supposed to come into law, but it's the new normal that we're having to navigate, and it's a normal that throttles any chance of real progressive legislation. And one of the things I was really grateful to see over the weekend that this bill had passed the Senate, and not surprised at all, on the one hand, by by the party line vote. I think one of the things that I find, though, deeply disturbing is how politics, and this kind of follows from our previous conversation with the bishops, how politics are guiding or interfering with common sense actions, common sense policies that help people, that help the collective group of people, the common good. Also, here's the part that I can't quite wrap my head around. 
that would also help their own political prospects. There's a weird thing right now in the GOP, and you see this play out with the the kind of conversations a few weeks back between Marjorie Taylor Greene and Liz Cheney and the in the kind of internal House politics around support for these two very different congresswomen. And there's this sense of being held hostage by an insane ideology as opposed to what is most politically advantageous. This $1.9 trillion relief bill had huge support among the public, including among more than 50% of Republican voters. And what kind of calculus do these Republican legislators think that across the board, party line voting no is in their benefit? Well, of course, the answer to that is in what calculus is the calculus that is the threat of a primary challenger from the pro-Trump or writer wing portion of the party, which is continues to have an outsized influence on GOP politics. What the vote said to me was that bipartisanship is dead. I mean, if you can't get a Republican or many Republicans to vote for this bill that, as you pointed out, Dan, was very popular with bipartisan support among voters. When you had the flip with the earlier COVID relief under the Trump administration, Democrats voted for that bill, even though they didn't get everything they wanted in it. But you couldn't get a Republican to vote for this bill. I watched Senator Manchin from West Virginia on the talk shows yesterday morning on Sundays, and he did hint that he might think it valuable in the future, to your point, David, to return to it being more painful that someone would maybe have to still stand up and hold the floor in order to prevent bills from being voted on. But he also talked about how he thought that things worked out well, that this was an example of the Senate operating the way it should and protecting the minority from a tyranny of the majority. And I think instead what we're seeing is this tyranny of the minority from being held hostage by the right-wing folks in the Republican Party. I think that's partly true, but I also think there are two things here. And Heidi, you hinted at one of them, which is the, the primary challenge threat. That's only real because Republican state legislatures have so gerrymandered the districts that, you know, that there is no a clear threat from an opposing party. So the threat is only from within. And to me, it's a bit of the, what's the expression? The birds have come home to roost or something like this, or chickens come home to roost. I'm totally butchering this. I'm so bad at these adages and cliches. I apologize to our listeners. But this is one of those cases where it works and it works until it doesn't. And to your point about the tyranny of the minority, over the last four years, the Republicans have had the Senate majority and they have done the exact same thing. So to me, it's not about whether one party is in the minority or majority. It's about common sense legislation. It's about what is the purpose of politics? What are the incentive structures? And clearly it's not the incentive structure is not delivering the will of the people, which is the whole point of a representative democracy in the republic that we have. And so to me, you're right. I, I agree that there's a brokenness here, but and I think the brokenness is the politics themselves. And this has been building since at least 1994 under Newt Gingrich's salt the earth sort of process. And on one hand, I think the Democrats can maintain, and rightfully so, a claim to the higher moral ground. But that hasn't accomplished much. And those who have read President Obama's first volume memoir, you know, I've had some PTSD reading through that of the 2009 Affordable Care Act passage. But I'm happy to see 
that President Biden and the Democrats in Congress this time around learned from those mistakes, that the Republicans have, since 1994 at least, and certainly under the leadership of somebody like Mitch McConnell, are not good faith actors anymore. And so any claim to uh, bipartisanship or blah, blah, blah is a complete farce. And so those who want to vote and work and cooperate in committee and so forth, they're most welcome to do that. But as you said, Heidi, they're under this duress. I just want to bring in a Catholic perspective here from the catechism. Paragraph 1897 says, when we're talking about the authority to govern, by authority, one means the quality by virtue of which persons or institutions make laws and give orders to persons and expect obedience from them. But the whole notion that's central to me in that is virtue. The notion that we're somehow, we're simply wielding power for the sake of wielding power is not a Catholic notion. And we have Catholic lawmakers on the right who think that this is like a football game. And the whole point is to have their team score the most points. That's not the point. The, the whole purpose is to get involved for the common good. And that's the virtue that those in civic life need to be pursuing. Well, you're certainly right about that. As I've written about and we've talked about on this this podcast before, the entire purpose of government, according to the Catholic Church, is the promotion and protection of the common good. That is its only purpose. But I disagree with you, David, on the, the football analogy, which is I, I don't think it's even a simple game like that. It's not just about winning or losing, because at least in those contexts, there are rules that are abided. There's uh, There are referees that can hold people to account. There are penalties for when people are not playing in the team spirit and so forth. I think it's purely Hobbesian. It's power for its own sake. And I think there's been no greater embodiment of that than now minority leader Mitch McConnell. You saw this play out with the rank hypocrisy around the Merritt Garland nomination to the Supreme Court in 2016. We saw that complete reversal in a much shorter time frame with Amy Coney Barrett. It is infuriating on the one hand, but it's disgusting to me. And there are no sporting events, football, American or <laughs> global or basketball or anything else that can compare because this is no sport. This is just nihilism. Yeah, I would just add that the bill hopefully will get reconciled and signed stands to really lift a large number of people out of poverty. And I get excited even with the minimum wage portion of it stripped out, which I think is really problematic. And I'll discuss that in a second. But just to say that as it stands, it's still the investment in people and especially direct relief for people who are suffering the most really does follow our Catholic social teaching principle of a preferential option for the poor. And the thought that so many of the suffering poor in our own country could get a, a hand up is very uh, encouraging to me. That said, the fact that we still are not raising the minimum wage for our lowest earners in this country is a sin. It's wrong. And I can't believe that not only the Republicans wouldn't support it, but even some Democrats didn't. And I think the church has spoken on this. Pope Francis many times has talked about the rights of workers. And when you have somebody working for seven some dollars an hour and hasn't had a raise in almost 10 years. This is, it's ridiculous and it's wrong that it was not included. Well, and if I can just add to that, Heidi, I think you brought up a really good point too about how the overarching consequence of this relief package is to benefit those who are most suffering and who are in the most precarious places in our society. And, and I'm reminded again of the rank hypocrisy that we see on display with with no Republicans voting in support of this $1.9 trillion relief bill. Yet, 
under the Republican Congress and with a Republican president in 2017, they passed uh, a tax cut for the most wealthy in the United States that added $1.5 trillion almost the same amount of money to the national deficit. And it, it's, and at the same time, when they're now not the, the party in power, they cry, they become deficit hawks and this sort of thing. To me, it is a scandal. It is a sin, like you're saying. Who are they willing to support and protect is the most wealthy, the most powerful. It is themselves. And I agree with you, Heidi. My hope is that a similar sort of thing will take place as a separate bill, as a separate process to raise the minimum wage. It may not get to 15 nationally, but even Joe Manchin and others who are the more moderate Democrats have signaled they're definitely open to some kind of increase. As we're thinking about legislation and these hindrances to good legislation that can help the kind of common good, we also have the kind of revisitation of the Voting Rights Act. And I wonder, Heidi, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, as Dan mentioned earlier, this is one of the root problems of so much what, that we're facing in Congress today and in many of our political processes. I'm not optimistic about it, but I would love to see church leaders get excited about supporting some reform there so that we could get away from some of the very problematic ways that politicians are acting. I was not encouraged, again, listening to Manchin on the Sunday shows. They were trying to get him to commit to saying that H.R. Bill 1, that would, or the, vote, the voter rights bill that's currently being discussed, that maybe would not be succumbed to these same kinds of uh, pressures. And he would not agree to that because it is so foundational that maybe we need to just go ahead and get that passed. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think the kind of origins of H.R. 1 lie in the dismantling of the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court under the Roberts Court some years back. And we see the consequences. We see, especially now after the 2020 presidential election, a number of states, including Georgia, as we're recording this, that are debating state legislation to further disenfranchise people. And these are not white, wealthy, suburbanite Republican voters. These are oftentimes communities of color and people who, you know, maybe in poverty or, or those who suffer the most, who have the least power in representation in government. And this is afforded because the Voter Rights Voting Rights Act was effectively gutted. So I think this is absolutely necessary. To me, it's a no-brainer. And it's the kind of legislation, I believe, I don't know if it's still the case, but there were proposals, there were talks about naming it after Congressman John Lewis, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which I think is, is a lovely tribute and should be done. Regardless of what it's called, it needs to be passed. I also think here's an opportunity for some humble reflection on the part of those who try to manipulate the the system of this over gerrymandering that has resulted in these extreme primary threats and so forth, particularly for the GOP. Actually, they might benefit from having a nonpartisan restructuring of congressional districts instead of trying to constantly find loopholes or cheat the system or rewrite the rules in their favor. What if we all just played on that? Going back to David, your football example, what if we had a level playing field? What if we actually all abided by the rules? Then they wouldn't feel these kinds of insane pressures and they could do things that their constituents actually want instead of feeding them lies that rile them up to vote for increasingly kind of extreme perspectives and policies. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think most Republicans are aware that if we do have a level playing field, that many of them would not get reelected. So it's not always in their interest to to uh, support such kinds of, of changes, but it would be the right thing to do. 
Well, as we look forward to these hoped-for changes and as we're looking at the ways in which these various bills are playing out in the House and in the Senate, we will certainly be keeping you informed. But for right now, we're going to have to step away from the conversation. Father Dan, Heidi, thank you both for being with me this morning. It's always good to see you. Great to see you, David. Good to be with you, Heidi. Yes, I hope you have a great week. And listeners, we ask that you continue praying about these issues and know that we are praying for you, and we are looking forward to being with you again in about two weeks. This has been The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media. We recorded the show at the William Adams Studios here in beautiful Hyde Park on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. The opinions expressed on this program are our own and do not reflect the position of any institutions with which we might be affiliated. We have production space courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. They're not responsible for the content of this program, but they're wonderful folks, and you should look them up at zygoncenter.org. That's Z-Y-G-O-N center.org. We also want to give a shout out to our friends at Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They're also not responsible for the content of this program, but they gave us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it. Check out their good work at saltandlighttv.org. We're supported by listeners like you. If you want to join us in this bold adventure, you can go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. Not only do you get the warm satisfaction of a virtuous deed well done, but you also unlock bonus content from our episodes. Again, that's patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. You can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at francisfxpod. That's Francis, the letters F and X, and the word pod. Likewise, our website is francisfxpod.com. And if you want to send us a question or comment, you can always talk to Frank by emailing francisfectpod at gmail.com. That's effect spelled the English way, E-F-F-E-C-T. If you're here for the first time, welcome. We have episodes going back into history. We hope that you listen to all of them, and we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. 